You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida. Come build with us on Christ, our firm foundation. To learn more, visit fbcfreeport.life. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I want to invite us this morning to open up our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. Nehemiah, chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15 together this morning in Nehemiah, chapter 8. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Uh, I'm encouraged by each and every one of you uh, in your presence today. I want to say that our... um, our church did a tremendous job together Friday for our food pickup and distribution. Um, you guys showed up and just worked so well together, and I saw a lot of people sweating. I mean, hard work. So thank you guys. Uh, very proud. Uh, we do have about 15 cases of bananas in the back, all right? So if you want to take some bananas for yourself or a neighbor, uh, please just walk back there and grab some, okay? We have a lot of bananas. I mean, a lot. So in this series through Nehemiah, in this book, one of the most compelling pictures that I personally have ever seen is in this book. Uh, the, The picture of God's people, and they're just beaten down and downtrodden. Their walls are laid bare. Nehemiah comes on the scene and the people begin to see that God is doing something that they've been waiting a long time for. And the picture of them surrounded by ravenous, murderous, treacherous enemies. But they pick up in one hand their sword and in the other their shovel. And they build. They build. That is a compelling picture for me. There's another picture that this reminds me of, and it's in a movie called The Pianist. And I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. You may not like movies, and you, I don't know. But this movie is about uh, a pianist. He's a, a Jew in uh, Nazi Poland, World War II. While all hell is breaking loose, bombs dropping everywhere, death all around. And he just keeps playing that piano. (laughs) The whole movie. He keeps filling up the world of chaos with truth and beauty. And that's a metaphor. And these pictures um, show us how to live in this time. If you're waiting for circumstances to get right, you know, for fair weather before you do anything, it'll never happen. (laughs) And I look at each of you, and I know there's different stories, and you know, some of you know. You can't wait for perfect weather to sail your boat. (laughs) Our generation, for various reasons, finds ourselves in a dark day. So parents, you're going to have to build your families and raise your kids in dark days. You're going to have to play your piano in dark days. You're going to have to have a sword in one hand, a shovel in the other. That's just how it is right now. And you have to ask yourself, what does it look like for me to play the piano? What does it look like for me to take up my sword and shovel and build? What am I supposed to be doing? What has God called me to do in this time? What do I put my hand to when the whole world seems to be against the Lord and His church, against truth and beauty? You think about the ugliness in our world, and it corresponds with all the lies and deception. You even think about what, what is the concept of art today? Art has become grotesque. There, there is perversity and, and just abhorrent things filling up our museums right now. Child pornography in the museums in Houston where children are depicted in, in grotesque ways, and that's called art. God has called His church to advance His kingdom in these dark days And there is a hope in Nehemiah that I want us to have. There is a victorious future awaiting a courageous church. So today, with all of this 
big picture in mind. Uh, chapter 8, we're going to look at, in verses 13 to 18, we're going to look at the serious business. All right, are you ready this morning? I only have you for a little bit today. All right? I wish, I wish the church could disciple people five days a week, eight hours a day, like the public school. I wish we could do that, because we could really pack in a lot. But I only got you for a little bit today. We're going to look at the serious business of remembering and rejoicing in the Lord. That's the theme today. Remembering and rejoicing in the Lord. And we picked up uh, where we left off. We covered last time the first 12 verses of chapter 8. And the context was coming into the seventh month. And this is the month of festivals. This is a month that comes around every year that God has designated for His people to remember. It is a season of remembering their redemptive history. And that's how God's people see history. See, the secular view of history is it's all random chance. We don't really have to interpret it. We just can take it and shape it and revise it and do whatever we want with it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. But God's people understand that history is, as has been said, His story. God is sovereign and He is moving history along, saving His people. And so the seventh month in God's calendar was so His people would look back and see and teach their children, God saves His people. That's all He's ever done. That's what He will continue to do right up until the end when he consummates history with the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And we, we did that in Vacation Bible School. Um, these festivals are meant to enact or dramatize redemptive history, God saving the day. And we did that in Vacation Bible School. Mr. Rick, as we read the Bible, he had the kids reenact the story. That's a way of etching it in their minds and hiding it in their hearts. And the Lord gave us his ordinances, baptism. And communion. These are two pictures to enact the good news of the gospel, the hope of salvation. So it's important that we take serious the business of remembering and rejoicing in the Lord. In verses 1 through 12, it, it captures day one of this month. And there was a giant assembly, all the men and all the women and all the children and everyone, servants, Slaves, everyone who could understand, they came together for this giant Bible conference where the Word of God was read, it was expounded, it was preached, it was taught. The result, if you remember, the result um, caught them off guard. It was profound and deep weeping. Alright? Uh, the, 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 the law showed the, the, the great incongruence between how God called his people to live and how they'd been living. They were, they were convicted that, wow, this is, the, this is the life God intended for us to live. This is the path of obedience and righteousness that David prayed that God would keep him on, and we've strayed so far away. They just were weeping. I mean, thousands of people just broken. I've never seen anything like that. But interestingly, Ezra blows the whistle. All right, he, he throws a flag on the play. You've seen the NFL. They, they throw a flag on the play. They say, time out. This is not the time in, 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 in the month for weeping. Um, and so he gives them instructions. He says, go home. This is the season of festival. It's time for you to eat the fat. All right, have a feast. Drink the sweet wine. Remember and rejoice. Those are your instructions. Now get out of here. That's day one. That kicks it all off. Now today we're going to pick up and we're going to see that God's people are getting ready to observe the um, festival of booths. All right, the festival of booths. And what this festival is going to show us, and it's not unique in this, but uh, well, well, the the particular observance of the festival of booths was where they would build these makeshift shelters, and it was to reenact when God delivered His people from Egypt in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. He led them out in the book of Exodus, and 
And he had them in the wilderness building these shelters, all right, for safety. And then he would drop food from manna. And for 40 years, he took care of them as they made their way to the promised land. And so this was a time to look back and remember and teach their children that everything's going to be okay because this is our God. This is what he does. All right. All of this takes us back to verse 10. In verse 10, which is arguably the theme of the whole book, <coughs> Ezra says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. All right, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So herein brings into focus the, the foundational truth of the Christian life. Yes, life is hard. Yes, we're on a journey to the promised land, to the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be hard. And the, 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 the message is you can't do it in your strength, but God has given you His strength. And it is the joy of Him in your life. So that's the secret here. And Paul said this in the New Testament. I know the secret. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we see that's the Christian life. It is Savior sufficiency not sufficiency in self not i can do this but that's my god my strength my joy my life it comes from him therefore we remember and we rejoice because he is our god that's the message today it is serious business to keep our eyes there i want us to pray and we'll read these verses again let's pray together father would you help us to apprehend and take to heart what you are saying to us in these short verses. And I pray that our lives, our thinking, our understanding and our attitude and our hearts, our, I just pray that we would be changed from the inside out. That you would leave a deep mark on us today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. There's a number of points that I want to draw out of this text here. Let's read it and we'll, we'll look at it. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra, the, the scribe and the priest, in order to study the words of the law. And they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them, and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, the temple, and in the square at the water gate inside Jerusalem, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing and day by day from the first day to the last he read the books of the book of the law of God and they kept the feast for seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule so let's look at this firstly we see in verse 13 that the serious business of remembering and rejoicing in the Lord it commences with the men Look at this on the second day, verse 13, the heads of the father's houses of all the people, the men, the heads and the fathers, what are they doing here? They are coming together with the priest and the Levites. That word heads, the heads of the father's houses, it brings into focus an important doctrine, the doctrine of covenantal headship. I'm going to unpack briefly 
and more specifically, male covenantal headship. What's going on here? This is a teaching in the Bible that you see. It's a, it is a theme that runs throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, beginning with Adam all the way till the end. <coughs> if I could unpack it, we know that God enters a relationship with his people and he calls it a covenant. All right, God's kind of relationship is not based on fleeting feelings or mood. It is a commitment. It is a committed love that will not walk out on or abandon his people. This is a steadfast love that God has for his people. Nehemiah prayed in chapter 1 to the mighty God who keeps his covenant, who keeps his promises, all right? The covenant-keeping God. And so God has a covenant relationship with his people, and he has ordained that the heads of the homes and the fathers would be covenantal heads. What is that? This is a representative of the group to the Lord. You know, this is a concept that we have today. We speak of heads of state, do we not? We have heads of state and we have a representative government. So what does that mean? We have government heads. They are elected by the people to represent the people at the highest level. And that's what covenant headship is about. God has ordained and elected these heads of their families to represent their families, their wives and their children and their households. And then we have the priest representing the churches to God. They stand before God on behalf of God's people. They are leaders. <coughs> Adam is the head, the covenantal head of the entire human race. That's why in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, who sinned first? Eve. And then Adam. But what does Romans 5 say? It says, through the one man, Adam, who sinned, sin came to all men. So, because Adam is the covenantal head, he is held responsible and accountable to God for his shortcoming. And sin comes through Adam because he was the covenantal head. God held him accountable, not Eve, for sin coming into the world and spreading. Likewise, Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ is the head of the church. And that's why Christ was able to be um, the second Adam. Romans 5 says that while sin came through one man and brought death to all, the one man Jesus, by his righteousness, brought righteousness to all. So when Jesus died on the cross, he is our covenantal head for all who put their faith in Jesus. His church, Christ is your head. He represents you to the Father. And He took your sin on the cross and He paid for it. This is covenantal headship. And we see this in marriage. In Ephesians 5.23, it says, Christ is the head of His wife just as Jesus is the head of the church. And so the, the, the husband's role is to represent his family to the Lord and to represent the Lord to his family. That's a heavy, important job. Um, what I'm saying is this. This serious business of passing on our faith in the Lord, it commences here in verse 13. And I hope you see this. I hope you see I'm not contriving this. I'm simply expounding what is there. What is there from beginning to end? And it, it's instituted in the old, in, in Genesis, and it's upheld in the new. Paul tells Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That is a role reversal. He says, for Adam was created first. So he takes this back to Genesis. The, the order here is that there is covenantal headship where men are held responsible for their wives, for their family, for their church. This, this is the plain meaning of the text. This, this, this is what you see when you read this. And so the question is, what kind of men 
does the church need? What kind of men do families and marriages need for the serious business of remembering and rejoicing the Lord? The answer is we need weighty, serious men. We need spiritual heavyweights. That's what we need. That's what we want. We need spiritual heavyweights. There used to be a word we used for, for men like this and, and for women too. The word was gravitas. Latin for heavy. We speak of so-and-so. Oh, he has gravitas. When he walks in the room, he becomes the center of gravity because he's got all that mass. That's a heavy dude there. When he walks in, just the whole room begins to orbit around, and everyone's paying attention to this guy. He's got gravitas. Maybe you've known people like that. I think of it this way. Dark days call for heavyweights because this world is constantly trying to knock us over. Have you ever seen those punching bags? They've got that heavy weight in the bottom of them. No matter how hard you hit them, they just bounce right back up. All right. If, it, if that weight wasn't in the bottom and you punched them, they go flying across the room. But that weight keeps them grounded and they just come right back. And, and you could throw anything at a person with gravitas and they just bounce back. Our gravitas is not centered in us. It's centered in the Lord's joy. The kind of gravitas we need is the Lord's strength and weight in our life. Amen? Pastor Ben Zorns, he says we need a glad gravitas. All right, so there's a little bit of a paradox here. You might think of a, of a, of a heavyweight man as being all serious and no fun. But the truth is, men who deeply know and love their Lord and are confident in Him, they have real abiding joy. These men can laugh at the days ahead. And that's what Proverbs says about the Proverbs 31 woman. She laughs at the days to come. That's gravitas. Mr. Zorn, Pastor Zorn says the Christian, the Christian should be the perfect mixture of gladness and gravitas, of joy and weight, spiritual weight. He says we are not gloomy, but there is a hint of sorrow in all our earthly joys. It is not a grievous hopeless sorrow, but rather an aching, hope-filled sorrow. That's a, 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 an astute picture of the kind of people we need to be. A mixture of gladness and gravitas. We're not Pollyanna about the hell in our world. We're not Pollyanna about it. We're sober-minded about it. But we know it doesn't have the final say because Jesus came out of the grave. Amen? So we're going through it. We're not going to drown here. We're going through it. He will see us through the other side if we remember and rejoice and press into Him by faith. So these heads and these men, they've come together. The priest is just the men. And we don't do that anymore. There are no men's spaces, no men's clubs, there's no men's gyms, there's no men's nothing because equality says the men, if they get together, something bad's going to happen. All right? Well, when the men get together in God's economy, things get straightened right. I will never be ashamed of that. I will lose my job for that if I have to. I will not apologize for that. They come together to study God's Word. That's what they're doing. What a rare and powerful picture. Men studying God's Word. Because they understand this is serious business. They've got to go lead their wives, their children, future generations. They've got to impart a remembering and rejoicing in God Almighty. Their lives depend upon it. This is a quintessential picture of biblical patriarchy. <laughs> Would you think with me for a minute? Our generation as a mantra says smash the patriarchy. Smash it. It's bad. It's toxic. Do you know the word patriarchy comes from two words? 
Pater, which means father, and Arcos, which means rule. Father, rule. That's what patriarchy means. Now you think with me for a minute here. We have these men, these fathers, and they are gathered to study the heavenly father's rule. They're studying the the heavenly father's rule so that these fathers can go and implement the rule of God for their families. That is biblical patriarchy. It is godly men leading their families and their households to know and love and live according to God's word. Amen? Now, I want to ask you something. There is an evil patriarchy out there. There are bad men. Who's going to smash them? Ladies, I got news. It ain't you. God made men with 75% more muscle, hard as a rock, ornery as, as, a, as a wild Mustang. You're not going to smash anything. Who's going to smash them? The godly patriarchy. That's who. Godly men leading is what this generation does not have. <clears throat> they came together to know their father's business. Now, you might be thinking, I didn't know any of this. I didn't grow up here in this. Well, we're just coming out of the sexual revolution. Of course not. <laughs> of course we're not. Since 1960, this has been uh, a bad message. Maybe you're thinking, I'm a lightweight. I'm a spiritual lightweight. I don't have gravitas. What can I do? Well, when I was in high school, I couldn't gain a pound. I was skinny as a rail. If they turned the fan on, it would blow me out of the basketball gym. But the good news is this. You can put on spiritual weight. I'm talking to our men from this, this chapter, but also to our women. You can put on spiritual weight and have gravitas. And the chief way we see it here is the study of God's Word. Think with me for a minute. In John 17, 17, Jesus had His original 12 men. All right? So you you think Jesus wasn't smashing the patriarchy. He had 12 men that He was going to use to establish His church. And He prayed in John 17, 17, Lord, Father, Father, He prayed to the Father, sanctify these men by Your truth. All right, so He said, grow them up, build them up, strengthen them, make them like Me, sanctify them. How? How? By Your truth. By truth. By truth. And then he goes on to say in that same verse, your word is truth. You want to be a heavyweight? Read and study and devour God's word. Show up for church. Read your Bible. Listen to podcasts. Read good books. A lot of them are garbage. Read the ones that teach the truth. Gather together with the saints. Men, get together with men. Women get together with women. Men and women get together with each other. Let's study God's Word. Remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn? He, he wrote Gulag Archipelago. He was eight years in the Russian Gulag. He quoted that famous uh, Russian proverb. He said, one word of truth, one word of truth outweighs the world. And then we got a book full of truth. You want to be a heavyweight, you let that get inside you. That's the first point. God has called the men to commence this work of remembering and rejoicing in the Lord. And here's the thing. More often than not, husbands and fathers, you will be the limitation on your family. You will. Your weight class will be the weight class of your family. Not always. There are some marriages, and we all know them, where the man just completely abdicated this, but the wife was virtuous and she went deep. She was a heavyweight. We all know that. But more often than not, same with kids. We know there are some mean old drunks out there and their sons went on to become heavyweight preachers. Or or you fill in the blank. 
But more often than not, as the father goes, as the husband goes, so goes the family. That's just an axiomatic truth that everyone knows intuitively because we, we pay attention, we watch. We all know it. So what we want are men who are spiritual heavyweights because then we will have families and churches that are spiritual heavyweights. That's the first point that we have. It commences with the men. Secondly, it is commanded by God's Word. Remembering and rejoicing is commanded by God's Word. In verse 14, these men are together. They're studying on day two, and they, it says they found written in the law. So they, they didn't have the Bible like we do. They didn't have it on their phone where they could just read it all the time. There was one copy, in all likelihood, it was on a scroll, and it was kept in the temple by the priest. They didn't get to go and, and read it all the time like we do. So they didn't have the familiarity. So when it was rolled out, they were leaning in because they wanted to know. They wanted to take advantage of a rare opportunity. They were hungry to know what it said, and they found something, and it blew their socks off. They'd forgotten about it, and this generation didn't know it, but it struck them so hard, they said, we got to do it. They found written in the law, and then it says this. What was written? The Lord had commanded. We'll go into what in a minute, but just the Lord had commanded. That hit them with so much weight that in this scroll, their God made a command. He issued a command. He said, I am God, you do this. That hit them with force that God makes commands, that God ordains, that God tells us how to live. Do you know that some 2,000 times in the Bible, hello, 2,000 times we see the Lord explicitly making commands. B.B. Warfield, a theologian, said it this way, the Bible is the Word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Do you read your Bible that way? In other words, the, the, when you read your Bible, are you in a posture of glad submission? Point one was glad gravitas. Point two, it's commanded by God's Word. Do you submit gladly to what the Lord commands, to what He is speaking on how we are to live. Are you obedient? Is that your heart? Is that the characteristic posture of your heart? Submission and obedience. Gladly so. Believing God is good. Is it? <clears throat> we use these words inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority to Talk about the Bible. It is inerrant, meaning in the original manuscript, it's without error. When God spoke through His messenger, it was taken down with precision. Sufficient. God's Word tells us everything we need to know for everything under the sun that we'll ever face. Alright? You say, well, God didn't say anything about, you know, computers or <laughs> internet or this, that, and the other. Well, there are principles. <laughs> We believe that God has given us everything because God is all-knowing, all-seeing. He knows the beginning from the end. He, he, he doesn't waste words, but He doesn't leave us wanting. The Bible is our guidebook. And then it's authoritative. It's not just a book of suggestions. Not for the Christian. For the Christian, it is our marching orders. It is our standard. They found written that the people of Israel... And then it says that word should. All right, the people of Israel should. I'm going to pause here because that word is important. Should. It implies obedience. It implies command. James chapter 1 says, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word. All right, now, that is a way the Bible is read in an antinomian culture. 
The word antinomian means against the law. That's the pleasure seekers, the Epicureans, uh, all right, of, of, of Acts. And that's our modern uh, nihilistic pleasure seeking generation. All right? There's a reason why we're a generation addicted to pills and porn. There's a reason. It's because we've abandoned God and we seek pleasure and happiness in everything under the sun except for God. And so we come to church and we listen, but it doesn't have that weight of authority in our life. But James says, don't merely listen and so deceive yourselves. He says, do what it says. Do what it says. I want to talk about the word piety for a minute. Piety. You know what that word means? Uh, it is a marriage between devotion and duty. All right? The word piety is a really good word. It's a really important concept. And it goes all the way back to the ancient days. The Romans had pietas as a virtue. All right, uh, there was a, it's the idea of fierce loyalty and devotion in your heart towards God, towards your family, towards your country. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate allegiance is owed to God. So piety or pietas uh, is that fierce devotion, but it begins inside, but then it issues in carrying out duties. Alright, so there's a duty to God. There's a duty to your spouse. There's a duty to your family. There's a duty to your country. Every man that marched into war, World War II, was demonstrating piety, devotion, and duty to nation. That's piety. What has happened, though, is that concept has been hijacked to make almost the opposite by the 17th century pietism movement. Pietism has hijacked piety. <laughs> All right? And, and, and pietism was a reaction against cold, dead religiosity. That was all outward in form and there was no heart. That was Jesus. You, you, you give lip service, but your hearts are far from Him. That was what pietism reacted to. And it became all about <clears throat> the inward relationship with God, all right? But what happened is it privatized everything. Suddenly, the only thing that mattered was what was between you and the Lord. And we still see this everywhere today. You'll see people say, well, I worship God the way I do. All right, that's between me and God. Well, what has happened is we have severed devotion from duty. In, in Rome, in the ancient Rome, Pietism was pictured in Virgil's Aeneid where Aeneas, the son, carried his father out of Troy while it was burning. That's piety. That's piety. You can't, he had a duty to his father to carry him safely out. It's outward manifest. Christians, piety, you cannot divorce the inward devotion to the Lord with outward obedience. You can't say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But then you live how you want. You divorce from God's Word. You can't do that. And so they were called to dwell in booths. This is Leviticus 23. Alright? They're reading from it. And if you go back and read Leviticus 23, God told His people to commemorate His deliverance by putting these booths up. And he said specifically, it was so that future generations could know. That's what it was about. It was about your, your little kids. And you were able to say, alright son, alright daughter. We're getting ready. We're going up into the mountains and we're going to bring back some, some branches and we're going to build a booth. What for daddy? What for mommy? Well, there's an important story we want you to know. We have a God who's always saved us. He's always been there for us. And we're going to celebrate that this month. And it's going to be fun. And we're going to have a party. We'll be singing and laughter and feasting. We're going to read God's Word. And we're going to remember. We're going to rejoice. 
What happens when we forget God? What happens? Deuteronomy 8 says this, verse 11 to 14, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws and decrees. He says, especially when everything is going great, when you're prospering, be careful that you don't forget God. Why? He says, otherwise your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God that He brought you out of slavery. Why is it so important that we intentionally undertake this serious business to remember and rejoice in the Lord? Because our default mode is sinful pride and forgetting God, thinking we've done it all ourselves. That's our default mode. That's your children's default mode. That's what it means to be a fallen sinner. Every one of us. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave his Templeton address in 1983, he stood up at a podium before all these people, and most of them were liberal, self-professed Christians, but they had long forgotten God. They didn't live according to God's Word. They didn't believe that Jesus even came back from the dead. These were just cultural Christians as he stood up there and he began to reflect on the horrors that they had witnessed in the 20th century in Russia and beyond, the, the genocidal, murderous, wicked, dark, war-torn 20th century. And he took them there to that dark place. And then he asked the question, how did we get there? And he said, when I was a boy, I heard the adults talking and they said, we forgot God. The adults, he heard them. He remembered as a boy. He says, the men have forgotten God. That's how this happened. And he said to all those people, we have forgotten God. And that's why all of this has happened. If you want to know why a Christian nation the fastest growing religious demographic is an agnostic. They have no religious affiliation. Their grandmothers sat in these pews. Their parents came to vacation Bible school. And their kids don't give a flying flip about God. Why? Because we failed to remember. We failed to undertake that serious business of remembering and rejoicing and keeping God at the center of everything. And that's why we must do that. We must remember because that's how we combat unbelief, ingratitude, and rebellion. It is with deep, abiding remembrance and rejoicing. In fact, the word religion means to bind. Fathers and mothers and church family, we need to be bound together with hearts of rejoicing around the Lord. That's the glue we need to hold us together. Rejoicing and remembering God. And it's carried out, thirdly, by the people. This business of remembering rejoicing. It is carried out. It commences with the men. It's commanded by the word. And then the people come together with such um, tenacity here. It says in verse 17, all assembled together. Everyone came together to live in booths and to build these booths. They're all on the same page. There's no rugged individualism. Oh, I do it my way. I don't need the church. Everyone is together together. And they are being shaped and formed as a people. And this was so important because it says in verse 17 that this was everyone returning from captivity. These people are like us today. I'm 40 now. Some of y'all are in your 80s. We have never seen the church or the family so splintered and so scattered and so broken and so anemic and so impotent. Just look at this church right now. It's empty. It's hollow. It's quiet. And that was God's 
people. They were coming back from the farthest scattered edges of the earth. They had no sense of corporate identity. They didn't know what it meant to belong to family or to church. They were just wayward orphans kidnapped and making their way home. It was so important for them and for us today that we come together around remembering and rejoicing in God. God is the center of gravity that must pull us together. Sports won't do it. Summer vacations won't do it. Shooting guns at the range won't do it. School activities won't do it. Family reunions won't do it. God alone is the center that can pull everything together. God alone. Amen? And so they came together and it says that from the time of Joshua until now, it had not been this way. Now they had kept this festival in years past. Even in Ezra, they kept it. But what this text is getting at is that they had, up to this point, they had not thrown their heart and soul into it. This was the party of the millennium. Alright? A thousand years earlier, Joshua and his people, they did it right. They were fired up coming out of slavery. A thousand years and God's people had grown cold. But they are experiencing a revival here. I tell you, I want this for us. I do. I have a gladness in my heart. I have an optimism in my heart that this church can fill up with heavyweights. You show up as a lightweight and stick with us. We'll make you a heavyweight. I don't consider myself there yet. I believe God who began a good work in us will carry us to completion. I believe that. And all of this connects us finally to the gospel. They looked back and they had reason to rejoice because they came out of slavery in Egypt. We have a much greater reason to rejoice. We look back at the cross and the empty tomb and we see that Jesus saved us from our greatest slavery. Slavery to sin. In John chapter 7, the connection here is that Nehemiah 8 is the festival of booths. And John 7, once again, is the seventh month and they're observing the festival of booths. And Jesus says in John 7 at the festival of booths, He says, I testify, He says, the world hates me because I testify that their deeds are evil. It's interesting. If you call sin, sin today, whether it's pride or anger or lust or sexual perversity, if you call what the Bible calls sin, sin, it's so interesting that people who love sin will hate you. Have you noticed that? It's interesting how that works. And, but then these same people want to say, but, but Jesus didn't talk about sin. He just loved everybody. He's like a fluffy bunny. You pet him and you're fine. No, he says, the world hates me because I testify that their deeds are evil. We've got to rescue Jesus from the caricatures that slander His name. He's not nice. He's God. He's kind, but He's not nice. He went to the cross and He died because they hated Him. But He came back from the, from the grave. So what, what, I, what am I saying? I'm saying... I have a hard job. I have to tell sinners that your sin is wicked and it will take you to the depths of hell and will hold you there underwater, submerged for all eternity and you will never know God's kingdom. And you can come here or go there and be on the roll and you can fool everyone. But you can't fool God. That's what Paul said he said, the Lord knows those who are His and everyone who claims the Lord must turn away from wickedness. I'm telling you that because I want that for you. Each and every one of you. I want that for my worst enemies. Jesus wants that for you. I want you. 
by faith in Jesus, to find all your sins washed away and to have a new heart. You can have that. You can have it. I want that for you. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And so Jesus testified that their deeds were evil, but then during the festival of booths, He stood up before the crowd and in a loud voice in John 7, it says, He said, If anyone is thirsty, come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from him. Talking about the Holy Spirit. That's the good news today. And we close on that note. Jesus is the fountain of joy. And by faith in him, you can be forgiven and you can drink deeply and you can have rivers of joy strengthening you every day of your life until you make your way I want that for you. I want that for your families, for your children. I want that for Freeport. What I'm saying is this is serious business, remembering and rejoicing. The temptation is to think, I've got to hit a home run. I'm a father, I've got to get this right. I'm a pastor, I've got to get this right. The temptation is to swing for the fence. I got to make sure my family remembers. But here's the truth God's word is kind of like eating lunch. I bet some of us remember the meal we had for Christmas last year, but we don't remember what we had for lunch yesterday. That's how God's word is. We remember some sermons, we remember some seasons, we remember, they just leave a mark on us. But then some days we don't remember what we read the day before. But the truth is all of that is nourishing you and causing you to rejoice in the Lord. So what I'm saying is you don't have to hit a home run every time. Just get base hits. Show up on Sunday consistently. Read your Bible regularly. You don't have to read it hours a day. Read it five minutes consistently. Get base hits and undertake the serious business, and God will transform your life, and He will transform this church. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Are you ready to take God at His word? We invite you right now to respond by faith and obedience. If you'd like to speak further about spiritual matters or to learn more about First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida, contact us today at fbcfreeport.life.